0: Thank you, the three people that cheered. If you don't know, for the eight o'clock stream, it's just uh, basically everybody involved in doing the Sunday morning stuff. So it's a pretty, pretty close, close-knit group for uh, the Sunday morning service at eight uh, or whenever you're watching this for the stream. Well, good morning. My name is Sean. I typically lead worship uh, for the church. Usually there's a guitar up here, like on me. So uh, if you felt like something doesn't look normal, it just feels weird. Um, that's probably it. Um, this is the one week a year that I get to teach, uh, so I'm going to try and keep it reined in. I'm going to like condense all 300 and some odd days that I would have been leading worship, whatever that works out, monthly, I'm not sure. Um, thank you to the creative arts team uh, for stepping in. Uh, it's awesome uh, feeling like I have the freedom to take a step back. You guys are rock stars, I'm super proud to serve with you, uh, and it's been awesome to watch the Creative Arts Ministry grow and develop over the past three years. Uh, Side note, next week is my three-year anniversary of coming on staff for the church. Next week, it'll be exactly three years. Um, First off, I just want to say, I'm teaching through the book of Job this morning, and I made a mistake picking the book of Job. A huge, huge mistake. Uh, Gary, last week, uh, Gary taught, and uh, I came up and we were speaking after the service, and I was very honest with him. I was like, I don't know why I picked the book of Job, and Gary uh, responded very simply, yeah, I don't know why you picked the book of Job either. Um, Job tackles a lot of deep questions and struggles that we all relate to, Uh, so I am usually drawn to the book And when the team was sorting out options for uh, this series, this underdog series, we had a list of potential candidates for what we could uh, choose to teach through, and I just had to pick Job. I didn't really think through what that meant for me today a year ago. So, uh, good good lesson in wisdom and hindsight in pre-planning. Just to give you an example, uh, the book of Job has 42 chapters in it, 42 chapters Last week, we did the book of Jonah, and there were four chapters in that book. So the, the contrast between what we're, what we're going to be diving into this week is pretty, pretty staggering. Moral of the story is Gary is a very wise man. So uh, the book of Job, here we go. Uh, the book of Job belongs to the wisdom books of the Bible. There are three of them in total, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job. I like to think of each of the books as like personified individuals. So when we approach Proverbs, I like to think of some regal, royal king on his throne dispensing wisdom. This is how you are to live a moral life and do the right thing. God is good, evil is evil. Good guys win, bad guys lose. Proverbs is the quintessential wisdom book. Ecclesiastes, on the other hand, is like a, like an art school dropout, like with a turtleneck and sunglasses on all the time. And he's sitting there with a, whatever those long cigarette plastic things are. And he's, he's just hanging out all is vanity and it's grasping for the wind, nothing new under the sun. And like the moral of the story is bad things happen and bad things happen a lot. And then we get to Job. Job is like the physical melding of these first two ideas or people uh, in, in, in a real world sort of application. And what happens to our story when these two things meet? We're going to get to that. But first, um, I kind of want to set the stage and I want to talk about story and narrative. I'm a huge fan of stories. I'm an avid reader, uh, Netflix, binger, Hulu. What, I, I just, I love stories. Um, if you're watching online, feel free to share uh, a story or uh, a book or a movie or something that is spoken to you and drawn you've been drawn to. There's always something specific that pulls us in. It's Maybe it's the, the battle of good versus evil, or there's com- compelling characters, or we feel like we can enter into a world that's being constructed and be a part of it. I love the implied questions, and I love seeing Themes and substances get developed throughout the narrative without ever having to be specifically stated or told. I love when all the threads that bind a story together become obvious. And one of the best examples that I could think of uh, is Lord of the Rings. Um, I was the, (laughs) uh, like in middle school and high school, I was the nerd that like read them over and over again. I tried to learn to speak Elvish, but... I remember when I was younger, I had never heard it before, so all I had was like the the vowels and the syllables to go off of, and that doesn't matter, I don't know why I said that. Uh, So, before we start talking about Lord of the Rings, I didn't think it was possible to exist in this life and not have either read the books or seen the movies, but recently, I didn't get their permission to share this, so I'm just gonna talk about them in the abstract. I met somebody who had neither seen nor read the books so immediately, it was like, as soon as I found that out, oh, you're coming over, we made popcorn, we did the whole nine yards. We watched the extended editions of the trilogy. They're about, they clock in at about three and a half hours each. So this is, this is an undertaking, to say the least. Um, real quick side note, The Fellowship of the Ring, the first movie of the trilogy, came out December 19th, 2001. The movie's almost 20 years old, guys. I remember when it came out in theaters. Uh, There are high school students that exist today that have never seen the movie because it came out before they were born. Uh, So quick breakdown of the story real quick. I'm just going to speed through this here. There's a bad guy. His name is Sauron. He makes a bunch of rings of power and launches an attack against Middle Earth in an attempt to enslave it. All the free people of Middle-earth band together to stop him and they succeed in the first battle. But however, Sauron's ring, the bad guy's ring that contains his essence, survived the battle. So he survived the battle. As long as the ring exists, he exists. So destroy the ring that takes out the bad guy, save the world. There's a whole lot more to it than that. There's a whole lot of themes and substances, but that's the basic plot of The Lord of the Rings, all three of the original trilogy. Um, So we're going to talk about hobbits this morning. I think we have an image of them. That's right. Those are my homies right there. Hobbits are like three and a half feet tall, uh, and they exist in a fantasy world of elvish warriors, dwarves, orcs, which are like scary goblins with pointy teeth and... Sharp objects they put in you, and monsters. Hobbits are completely unequal to the tasks set before them, yet they soldier on because it's the right thing to do, and they sign up to help destroy Sauron's ring of power. The characters of the Hobbits exemplify what it looks like to have very little to bring to the table and contribute, yet still choose to fight against evil and to stand up for what is right and worth protecting. Uh, Side note, side tangent, uh, just because I'm getting excited, we're talking about Lord of the Rings. There is a direct Christian parallel and application for our life. Um, As followers of Jesus, we bring very little to the table, and that is only through the sustaining work and power of Jesus that we can accomplish anything. Uh, So here's the point of all of that. What isn't said is almost as important as what is said Middle-earth is saved or helped to be saved by the most unlikely of people, and we are shown that throughout the narrative, not just simply told about it. Every time one of the hobbits does something great or heroic, it is in spite of their nature and abilities. Hobbits prefer quiet lives in cozy homes with tasty food. They don't like adventure, they don't like sword fighting and evil wizards the underlying unspoken thread that connects their character arcs as they develop in the story as people is almost as important as what we read about them, how they go from A to B in other words. I just want you to keep that in mind as in response to the sermon you go and watch the trilogy of the Lord of the Rings. Uh, So with that church, I want to show you all the product of my labor in studying for this book. This is the culmination of all of my theological training and understanding of Scripture, you will never be the same after what God has revealed to me about the book of Job. Are you ready to have your lives changed? That's right. (laughs) I present to you all my comprehensive breakdown of the book of Job. Uh, So we got the introduction. This chapter is one through two. Job's friend's talky bits, God's talky bit, and then the conclusion. Uh, No, seriously, the book of Job is almost all dialogue. If you've ever read it, buckle up for 42 some odd chapters of straight conversation. Uh, So what I'm going to do is I'm going to walk us through the thousand foot view of what goes down in the book of Job. So here we go. If you have your Bibles, please open them to the first chapter of Job. This is Job chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day. And they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. So right off the bat here, we learn a couple very important details that are easy to overlook or miss if you're reading through quickly or if you don't quite know what you're looking for. Uz is a land far removed from Israel. We're not talking about the Israelites in this story or their land. Job himself is not an Israelite. This is important to us because usually when you interact with biblical narrative, you wanna know what tribe or backstory or family history uh, somebody brings to the table. The implications for us here then is to focus on what we do know about Job. He was a man who was blameless and upright. He feared God and turned away from evil, even going so far as to cover the potential sins of his kids. This guy was committed to God. Let's continue. This is going to be same chapter, verses 6 through 12. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan, And Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went from the presence of the Lord. So one day, God is hanging out doing God's stuff. And Satan comes up to God and God is like, hey, check out my boy Job, dude's a stud, right? Satan accuses God that the only reason why Job serves God is because Job has got everything you could ever want and that life is good. So God says to Satan, go ahead, do your worst, but don't kill him. Satan goes on a rampage and systematically eliminates everything that Job has. One thing after the other. Family, servants, money, property, health, gone. Job is left with absolutely nothing. In a loving demonstration of solidarity with her husband in chapter 2, verse 9, Job's wife tells him to curse God and die. Talk about support structures, Uh, just to paint the severity of Job's life is breaking down and even his wife is jumping ship. Job goes from being on top of the world and having everything you could ever want to wallowing in poverty with open sores all over his body and using broken pieces of pottery to scratch and cut off the wounds. That's the introduction to the book of Job. It's super uplifting stuff. So what follows next is the bulk of the narrative that we're interacting with, and it's essentially just a back and forth between Job and his friends. Allow me to introduce you to Job, and I can't stress this with air quotes enough, friends. We have Elphaz, the Temanite, Bildad, the Shuhite, and Zophar, the Namahite. They enter into the story to console him. These guys are the absolute worst. Instead of comforting Job in his time of desperate need, they essentially take turns holding him down and verbally beating him up. Job's three friends were positive that the magnitude of Job's suffering was because of some grievous sin in his life. Because he was such an upstanding guy, the only logical reason why this could ever happen to him was must be a direct result of some hidden sin. Do you guys know what inspirational uh, posts are or like memes? It's usually like a foggy treescape or a skyline mountains, and there's usually some sort of uplifting quote or inspirational blurb. Uh, I thought it would be funny if I made my own and used Job's friends' quotes as the, in lieu of the uplifting stuff. So here's the first one. There is no end to your iniquities. Or, you have given no water to the weary to drink, and you have withheld bread from the hungry. Or, you have sent widows away empty handed, and the arms of the orphans you have crushed. That's from my boy Eliphaz. Job, you've given no water to the weary. Job, you haven't fed the hungry people. Job, You sent widows away when they needed help. And lastly, you beat up children and break their limbs. The next one I made, uh, this is from Zophar. His contribution is assuming Job is a wicked person and frames everything in regards to that. So talking about Job, swallow down riches and vomit them up again. God cast them out of his belly. Or... They, meaning wicked people, inferring Job, will give back the fruit of their toil and will not swallow it down. From the profit of their trading, they will get no fruit of their enjoyment. They have crushed and abandoned the poor. They have seized a house they did not build. They take turns looking for reasons why Job is suffering the way that he is. God must be punishing Job. But Job, throughout the course of the narrative, silences these three by defending himself against their accusations and showing that there is no correlation in the world between righteous and prosperity, or wicked and suffering. Job maintains that the righteous often suffer more than the wicked, and the wicked often prosper more than the righteous do. Over the course of many chapters, Job eventually emerges victorious over the weak and demeaning theology of his friends. However, there was a fourth friend. The plot thickens. After all their joyous conversation back and forth between Job and his buddies, the fourth friend named Elihu, I think that's how you pronounce it, jumps in. Uh, He was the youngest person there and he chose to remain silent and listen and bide his time before jumping in. In chapters 32 through 37, you can read what Elhu uh, says, and essentially he rebukes both Job and the three friends. This is how he enters, uh, enters the party. This is chapter 32, if you're following along or if you wanna turn there. But Elhu, son of Barakul the Buzzite of the family of Ram, burned with anger he burned with anger at job because he justified himself rather than god he burned with anger also at job's three friends because they had found no answer although they had declared job to be in the wrong now elihu had waited to speak to job because they were older than he and when elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of these men he burned with anger I love this so much, (laughs) Uh, he's basically saying, hold up, I let you all run your mouths for a really long time, it's my turn to say something. The three friends of Job had not been able to account for Job's suffering with their theology or their understanding of God, and Job, in his defense of himself, had said rash and presumptuous things about God in order justify himself. For example, this is from chapter 27, and this is Job. As God lives, who has taken away my right, and the Almighty, who has made my soul bitter, as long as my breath is in me and the Spirit of God is in my nostrils, my lips will not speak falsehood, and my tongue will not utter deceit. Far be it from me to say that you... His three friends are right. Till I die, I will not put away my integrity from me. I hold fast to my righteousness and will not let it go. My heart does not reproach reproach me for any of my days. Elihu's point of view is that Job is a righteous man, though he's not perfect, but that he is loved by God and that he is God. God is treating him as a child and friend. As Elihu's. Rebuke kind of winds down against Job and the other three men, a storm cloud, rolls in. God's got something to say. And what is perhaps my favorite verse in the entire Bible, we hit chapter 38, verse three. This is God speaking to Job. (laughs) Gird your loins as a man. I shall question you and you shall declare to me. God literally tells Job to put on his big boy pants because they're going to throw down. Just to put that in context, Job has been bickering with his three friends for a super long time, and God rolls up and goes, hey, I heard you were talking about me. What follows next, handful of chapters, is God walking Job through the fact that he is God and Job is not. God takes Job from the skies to the earth and sea to the stars to the planets above to animals that inhabit the world. And he reminds Job that he has zero understanding of how they all work together and the ridiculous fact that God is omnisciently mindful of all of these things. Here's a quote uh, from John Piper concerning this interaction between Job and God that I thought was insightful. So whether we focus on the earth or the sea or the dawn or the snow or hail or constellations or rain, the upshot is that Job is ignorant and impotent. He doesn't know where they came from. He doesn't know how to make them work. He is utterly surrounded above and below by mysteries and so are we because the scientific advancements of the last 200 years are like sand pails of salt water hauled from the ocean of God's wisdom and dumped in a hole on the beach while the tide is rising. God is not impressed, and we should be overwhelmed with our ignorance, not impressed with our science or understanding of the world. God is, by nature, completely beyond our comprehensive our ability to comprehend after god finishes outlining his resume of being god to job job repents for questioning god and that's it the story ends with god restoring to job everything he lost plus more and it says that job lived a long life and was able to see the fourth generation of his grandkids the end It's for sure worth your time uh, to sift through the book of Job outside of this morning. The book of Job asks essential questions and wrestles with what it means to be alive. Now I'm going to break it down into two manageable chunks and look at some of the common themes and questions asked through the book. This is not an exhaustive list by any means, but these are the themes I felt like were important for us to work through together this morning especially in light of current events in our country right now further having an answer to these or at least beginning to articulate your understanding and belief in an answer is important so here they are the two things suffering exists why does god let bad things happen to good people so we're going to look at the first point suffering exists uh, at the f- at first, Job took all of the suffering and loss with amazing submission. In the narrative, uh, chapter one, verse twenty one, has Job saying, "The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Shall we receive good at the hand of the Lord, and shall we not also receive evil?" The friends of Job made the wrong conclusion when they assumed suffering was always a sign that God's displeased displeased with a person. They basically believed in karma. What goes around comes around. You get what you deserve. They assumed God was never present in someone's suffering, that sorrow was a sign that God had removed himself from the equation. In church, I'm just going to say it right now, I don't know why suffering exists, but I do think that if someone tells you they know why, they're lying to you. I don't know why pain exists is as real as it is, why loss and death are part of our reality. But what I do know is this, is that we do not have a God that is removed from suffering. We know who God is because of how Jesus suffered, the cross that he willingly bore. We often speak of life being unfair or in terms of, I don't deserve this. And I would encourage us to place those comments and those thoughts and those ideas within the context of trying to explain how it was fair for Jesus to die for sins he didn't commit. Job says it best in his dialogue with God, chapter 42, verse 3, Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. Suffering is a guaranteed aspect of living in this world. It is also a guaranteed result of following Jesus. Yet because of the gospel, we can approach suffering differently. The God of all things, the creator of life itself, who not only understands every facet of this world, but is able to be mindful of it all, is willing to be present for us in our suffering. Additionally, I've got a picture I want to show you. (laughs) Church, this is not an accurate representation of the world. Satan isn't some sort of power play with God. God is in complete control, and we should take comfort in that. In the beginning of Job's story, Satan has to ask permission to get at Job. It's not even a fair fight. It's not even a fight because God has already won. Our hope is in the triumph of the cross, not in deliverance from suffering. Obviously, this is much easier said than done. It's always easy to talk about this stuff as a detached third party. It's something else entirely when you're actively living it. But our response in Dark Seasons Is crucial to our understanding and development as followers of Jesus. So, three things I want us to tackle in regards to suffering. One, expect it. Just knowing that suffering will come can help us endure suffering. It should never surprise us because we know the biblical story. We expect suffering to be a part of our lives. So, when it comes, it does not create tremendous doubt. The book of Job shows us that suffering is not a sign of God's absence. Suffering will occur, and when it happens, we don't have to be shocked by it. Two, embrace it. While others try to deny it or avoid it, Christians can embrace suffering. There is no need for us to pretend like everything is okay, because we know that God works through brokenness and suffering, and we can admit we are broken or hurting. We can reveal our suffering to the world, knowing that God can and will use us. If God and suffering are polar opposites, we should run from suffering in order to run to God. Yet, because God comes near the brokenhearted, we can run to those who are suffering, and in so doing them, we can embrace them and find God there. Three, hope in the sorrow. One of the greatest gifts Christianity has to offer the world is hope in the midst of sorrow. Our hope is born in two facts, Suffering will one day end, and God can be known through suffering. The promise of heaven shows us that what we endure in this world will one day come to an end. For those who love Jesus, a day will come in which he will wipe away every tear. There will be no more death or suffering or sorrow. Yet our hope is in more than just a future in heaven It is also found in the promise that God is with us in the midst of suffering. We can hope because we know he is with us. He will empower us and can reveal himself to us in the midst of suffering. Expect suffering, embrace it, and hope in the middle of it. That brings us to the second chunk of this morning working through the book. Book of Job, why does God let bad things happen to good people? This is the classic question that has probably driven more college freshmen out of the church than any other. They go off to college and some professor gets his kicks by preying on young Christians. This type of question is very common in those circles. Why does God let bad things happen to good people? I honestly debated trying to find a way out of addressing this. It's scary. It's, a, it's, it's big. This is a biggie but I think it's integral to the story of Job, and I didn't want to do us the disservice this morning of pretending like it wasn't worth talking about or interacting with. Maybe you know somebody that's walked away from the faith because they can't square up with this idea. In my experience, people usually walk away because they haven't ever had to, to line up with this idea until it's too painful to interact with in any meaningful way. Walking away is just easier than entering into the hurt and into the questions. Uh, Church, if you haven't wrestled with this, why do bad things happen to good people? I encourage you uh, to do so. You'll know God on the other side of it. You'll know him better on the other side of it. And I want to be very clear before we move forward. I do not claim to have all the answers, and I don't think anybody does. But I want to do my best to unpack what God taught and showed me through the book of Job studying for this week so one the source of god is the source of evil is not god the bible makes it clear that god is not the author of evil it is not in his character and it is not his creation the story of job illustrates this truth if god was the originator of evil satan would not be a necessary part of the book of job two satan and evil must submit to god's sovereign design While God is not the originator of evil, he does reign over evil. We do not live in a dualistic world of equal powers, good and evil. There is nothing outside of God's control. For evil to occur, it must have God's divine permission. So here's the rub with that. This is difficult news. It means that anything which happens in this world could have been prevented by God. Cancer. Car wrecks, earthquakes, tsunamis, genocides, wars, divorce, random acts of violence, child abuse, etc. While God is not the author of this, these things, he must give his divine permission for them to occur. He must restrain his divine power in order for evil to take place. It is difficult to understand why a loving, compassionate, and powerful God would allow bad things to happen. I've heard it commonly rephrased this way. Either God isn't all powerful because bad things happen, or he isn't all good because bad things happen. My pushback to that is pretty simple. Either you're just as powerful and or good as God is because you think you know his motivations, or perhaps the creator of the universe's ways are higher than ours and we won't understand it on this side of eternity. Faith is a large component when entering into these concepts. On one hand, church, this is very good news. While this truth leaves us with unanswered questions, it does give us a powerful God to whom we can ask those questions. If God didn't control our darkest days, he would not be a sovereign or powerful God. He would, by definition, not be God. While it is difficult to understand why God allows evil, I would far rather have a God I do not understand than to have a God whom I understand but doesn't have the power to do anything about evil. This is Romans chapter 5. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. God controls our darkest days, which means our grief is never wasted, our sorrow is never useless, and our pain is never pointless. This should remind us that even in our worst moments, it can all be used for good. It tells us that when everything seems in chaos, God is still in control. The cross of Jesus Christ is the best example of the relationship between God, good, and evil. The death of Jesus on the cross is not God's failure or lack of control. It is evil at its worst, yet that evil was not out of God's control. He used the death of Jesus as a part of his divine plan to bring life Redemption and hope to a broken world. At this point, I'm going to invite the band up. We're going to respond this morning. But before that happens, I have um, some closing comments. Nothing about the story of Job seems to make sense. And it certainly isn't satisfying. We want answers and we want justice. But that is part of the point, I think. Suffering doesn't make sense. We all want to be in the first chapter of Job. We want that to be our story. We want that first part to tell us that we are blameless, we are upright, we are righteous We're the greatest person among our peers. We fail to see the threads of grace and mercy interwoven throughout our narratives. Our assumptions of obtaining such a life will inevitably crash into reality. Suffering comes armed to the teeth. It hits us with grief, hardship, tragedy, sickness, crisis, devastating loss, and more ways to inflict pain than we can count. Suffering doesn't care how old you are, your sex, your nationality, or how much money you have in the bank. If you breathe, you're going to get dirty. In the midst of such suffering, church, faith is still an option, even if it appears illogical to choose it. Choosing faith in the midst of suffering may look like insanity to all who are looking at you or watching you. I encourage you, church, when faced with these things, choose. Choose faith. Choose to follow God into the dark. Because the other option is to sit in mourning with Job before God intervened. If you hear nothing else this morning, Hear this, God has worked his greatest triumph through what appeared to be the greatest loss. First Corinthians 1.18 tells us, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So church, let's respond together by taking communion this morning. Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. The Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Amen, church. Let's respond together this morning.